Eliezer Yudkowsky's recent comments and doomerist posture towards artificial general intelligence have triggered a lot of discourse. While much ink has already been spilled on the subject, I think it's important to dig into some of the principles underlying his ideas and why people disagree. My guest today, Scott Aronson, is the Chair of Computer Science at the University of Texas at Austin and Director of its Quantum Information Center. Our discussion starts with his perspectives about the state of quantum machine learning and its limitations. We then discuss his recent work at OpenAI, where he has been researching the theoretical foundations of AI safety and developed a watermarking scheme for identifying AI-written text. His comments on the orthogonality thesis, that an arbitrarily intelligent being could have arbitrarily stupid goals, are worth reflecting on. I hope you'll take as much away as I did from his perspectives. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. As always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. But now... Without further ado, Scott Aronson. Professor Aronson, you've recently been doing some very interesting work with OpenAI, but your background is as a quantum computing researcher. So I do have to ask where and how you started thinking about AI in the first place, and then perhaps eventually, how did you come to start working with OpenAI? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been curious about AI for, you know, as long as I can remember. Uh, And uh, actually, uh, when I was an undergrad at Cornell, uh, I worked on the RoboCop team, uh, you know, doing uh, AI for the soccer playing robots. Uh, That was a a key experience for me that convinced me to not become a software engineer uh, because, you know, I realized that, uh, you know, while, while I love programming, uh, you know, making my code work with everyone else's code and getting it done by a deadline and documenting it and so forth, it, you know, I, uh, I, I, I kind of stunk at those things. Then uh, I went to uh, uh, grad school for a PhD in CS at, at Berkeley and uh, it was actually the AI and machine learning people who recruited me there. And uh, I spent a year doing that. Uh, and I, I sort of, um, um, you know, I had the secret love of quantum computing. <laughs> but I, you know, I wasn't sure that I could actually do anything new in, in quantum computing. And I had, this was back in, you know, the, the year 2000. You know, but I, I had a dream of somehow combining AI with quantum computing. Uh, looking at, you know, the quantum versions of all these uh, uh, ML concepts like uh, uh, graphical models and, uh, and Bayesian inference. And, and, I, and I never managed to get very far with that. Uh, and, you know, and then I just, um, after my first summer, uh, summer after my first year at Berkeley, uh, managed to solve a big open problem in quantum computing. And then I was kind of pulled into that, you know, and, and then, and then I, I did quantum computing for uh, uh, you know the uh, mostly for the for the past twenty years. 
Uh, now, around uh, uh, 2010 or so, uh, I, I learned something that, uh, uh, you know, if I, if I had just had a little bit more self-confidence, you know, it turns out that uh, you don't really need to say anything interesting about, you know, quantum AI in order for, you know, thousands of people to get super excited about it, right? <laughs> so, you know, quantum AI sort of became a whole field, right? Uh I would say, you know, around 15 years ago, something like that. Okay. And, uh, you know, I mean, people became, you know, extremely interested in, in, you know, how much can quantum computers speed up, you know, the central problems of AI, whether that means uh, search optimization, uh, training, you know, deep neural networks, uh, uh, inference, any of these things. And, you know, I, I think those are indeed enormous questions, right? That's, you know, like I would say, a large part of, of the question of, you know, how useful will a quantum computer be, you know, is tied up with how useful will it be for those tasks. But, you know, we're, we're up against kind of a fundamental difficulty that goes all the way back to, you know, the beginning of quantum algorithms, say, uh, 30 years ago, which is that, you know, if you want an exponential speed up for, from a quantum computer, it seems to be only for very specialized problems that we can get that, right? Uh, you know, and, and to explain why would require going into some of the details of what a quantum computer is and, and how does it work. But, you know, the two really huge examples where we're pretty confident that a quantum computer could give us an exponential speed up are, first of all, the simulating quantum mechanics itself, Right, which was the original application that you know Richard Feynman had in mind forty years ago when he you know proposed the idea of quantum computers, and second of all, breaking public key cryptography that currently protects the internet, right? Which is the famous thing that was discovered by Peter Shore in nineteen ninety four that a a quantum computer just so happens to have the right properties to to break you know the crypto systems that we just so happen to use right now, which tend to be based on problems in number theory, like uh, factoring huge integers or discrete logarithms, things like that. Now, what people usually want to do in AI falls into neither of those two categories. You know, you're just, you're given a, you know, some arbitrary system of constraints. You want to satisfy as many as possible. Or, you know, you're given a loss function, you want to, you know, set the weights in your neural network to minimize your loss function, right? There are things like that. For those types of tasks, uh, we do know a quantum algorithm that can sort of generically help with those sorts of tasks. It's called Grover's algorithm, discovered in 1996. So Grover's algorithm can sort of take any list of N possible solutions to some problem and find a good solution, if there is one, you know, in only about uh, the square root of n num number of steps, where in each step you can check whether solutions are good or not, right? And the way it works is by sort of querying about all of the solutions in superposition. But now, even having done that, you still need like square root of n steps. This is my point, okay? And you should think of n, the number of possible solutions, as something truly enormous, right? So like you could easily have in a combinatorial problem, like uh, two to the thousand power possible solutions, right? Now what's the square root of two to the thousand? Well, it's two to the 500, right? 
So that's so that's a that's a uh, smaller number, but still quite enormous, right? That's the kind of speed up that Grover's algorithm can give you. And for for many many tasks in AI and machine learning, like that is you know still almost thirty years later, that's the that that's still the most that we would know how to do, e- even with a perfectly uh, functioning quantum computer. And now there's even a further difficulty, which is that to run a quantum computer at all and to actually run it at scale with like thousands or millions of qubits, we expect that you would need something called error correction, you know, to get the qubits to work reliably. And error correction imposes an overhead, okay? It might mean that you need like thousands of physical qubits to simulate just a single qubit of your algorithm, right? A single logical qubit, as we call it. And so then you're talking about millions of qubits. You're talking about sort of paying a constant factor overhead, which could be in the millions, right? Just to run your quantum computation at all, okay? And now if, if, if we're talking about Shor's factoring algorithm, which gets an exponential speed up, right? Then, then that, that exponential speed up can still win out over like a factor of a million, you know, constant slowdown. Right. You know, like if you're trying to factor a 2000 bit number, you know, as is currently used in for for like high security applications on the Internet, like a 2048 bit Diffie-Hellman key, let's say, or RSA key, then we don't really know how to do that in any feasible amount of time. Or at least no one who knows how to do it has said so in public other than via Shor's algorithm, other than via building an error corrected quantum computer. You know, which, you know, it might fill a whole building on the current estimates. It might take a week. Okay, but it would work. It would factor this 2048-bit number. With Grover's algorithm, you know, the you know, if you're paying a factor of a million overhead, right, and the speed up you're getting is only square root, then you know, the crossover point where that starts outperforming what you could do with a classical computer, that gets pushed out even further into the future. Right. And so then in order for, you know, the Grover speed up to be practical, which is really when when I think quantum computers would would really, you know, start being very broadly useful for AI, you know, then 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 either you need like super enormous quantum computers or else you need someone has to discover a better way of doing error correction with a lower overhead. Okay, so. But in the meantime, none of what I've just explained to you has stopped like hundreds of people from talking up, you know, how quantum computers are going to revolutionize AI and machine learning in the past 10 or 15 years. And even raising, you know, billions of dollars in venture capital based on this, you know, uh, hope or, or belief that they will. Right. And and people have used several strategies. I mean, one of them is to just ignore all the issues. Right. Just sort of talk as if quantum computers will give exponential speed ups for all these AI problems and just hope that no one knows enough to even, you know, say, hey, wait a minute. Right. Uh, uh, You know, another strategy, though, is to like there are heuristic quantum algorithms, you know, that might get exponential speed ups for AI problems in some cases. You know, at least, you know, we don't really know if they will, but we can't rule out the possibility that they will. Right. 
And so you can, you know, just like with classical heuristics, like simulated annealing or, you know, genetic algorithms, things like that, right? Typically, it's not a matter of proof, right? We can't prove what these algorithms do. We could just try them out and see that, you know, often enough they do work, right? And, you know, I mean, the entire deep learning revolution was based on, you know, an approach where, you know, we had no way to prove in advance that any of this was going to work, right? We just had to try it and see, okay? So, you know, there are quantum algorithms that are in the same category where, you know, we don't yet have the scalable quantum computers on which to try them out, right? We can only try them on very small quantum computers, or of course, we can simulate them using classical computers, okay? But the uh, but, but then we're also very limited to, to small sizes because, you know, that's the whole point of a quantum computer, right? That the cost of simulating it classically is, 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 uh, can be enormous, okay? So these are things like uh, the, what's called the quantum adiabatic algorithm, which is like a quantum enhanced version of simulated annealing proposed in like 1999, uh, more recent variants like uh, this uh, QAOA, quantum approximate optimization algorithm and, and, and other things. And now because we don't understand these algorithms, people are free to just make the most optimistic possible assumptions right about what they'll do and and you know present it to journalists or to investors you know as if as if it's fact. Right. So so that that's another thing people do. And then and then there, there's a, a kind of subtlety. Right. Which is that often with a quantum algorithm, you can make it look like you've gotten the right answer, you know, in a very short amount of time in this incredibly impressive way. And the only problem is that you can't measure to see the answer. OK, so often often quantum algorithms can solve very hard problems in a sort of implicit way where you know the answer is represented by the quant- by the the final quantum state right by this you know the, this this sort of mathematical object this vector of complex numbers that we use to describe the output state and and so then you know if you tell that to someone who doesn't really understand the subject then they will think that a quantum computer has then solved this super hard problem super fast. An example would be like inverting a matrix, solving a system of linear equations in only logarithmic time, right? And then people say, oh, wow, you can do that? Well, then of course that's useful for AI, right? And this is, you know, this this is based on an algorithm called HHL, Harrow Hasidim Lloyd, that was discovered in uh, 2008 or so, where it kind of looks like it's solving a linear system in only logarithmic time you know, exponentially faster than we could do classically. The trouble is that the solution is only represented as a quantum state. And now, you know, uh, in real life, you have to measure that state, right? And you only get a tiny, tiny little probabilistic sample uh, about the output when you measure. Okay, so 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 HHL, you know, these algorithms like that could, might be an ingredient in some future quantum algorithm that would get an exponential speed up for something practical, right? But, you know, it, it, it would have to be, you know, one piece of a, of, a, of a larger algorithm, right? You know, something that could actually make use of that quantum state that, that's produced as output. Okay, so, 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 so this is, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm explaining to you some of, you know, the situation of, of, you know, what are the prospects for a quantum computer to revolutionize AI, right? And, you know, there's all these sort of, you know, po- possibilities, you know, that are all sort of blocked by something, right? Either blocked by, you know, the fact that Grover's algorithm seems like the best that we can do for these general search problems, or it's blocked by the fact that the output is a quantum state. Okay, uh, or you know, it, it's uh, uh, you know, or it depends on these heuristic algorithms that we can't analyze, and maybe they'll give huge speed ups in practice. But you know, we need a quantum computer before we can find out. So there, there was a, a you know a clear claim to get like a quantum speed up for uh, recommendation systems for like the kind of thing that Netflix does, you know, recommending movies to, 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 to users. Uh, uh, and that was proposed in 2016. And that, you know, I, and, and I really liked it because I could see that it got around all of these uh, issues, you know, and, and, uh, and so I gave a, a student who was actually an 18-year-old undergrad at UT Austin by the name of Ewin Tang, right? I gave her the problem. Can you prove that this quantum speed up is for real? Which means prove that any classical algorithm that gives you the same information about like the user's preferences, prove that it would take, you know, uh, uh, exponentially longer than the quantum algorithm takes. And so my student, Ewin, spent a year on that problem. And then after a year, you know, uh, of failed attempts came to me and said, listen, I, I think the reason I haven't been able to, to prove this is that it's not true. I think there is a classical algorithm that only gets, you know, uh, uh, that's only polynomially slower than the quantum algorithm is. And I was skeptical, but I told her to pursue this and it turned out to be right. Okay. So, so that was a, uh, and that was a breakthrough result like five years ago, which uh, uh, destroyed, you know, one of the main examples that we had had of how you, you might get an exponential quantum speed up for machine learning problems and then building on Ewin's breakthrough, you know, a whole bunch of other quantum machine learning algorithms have now been dequantized or, or as I like to say, uh, Ewinized, right? And so, so, um, so, so I still think that quantum machine learning is extremely interesting as a scientific subject. Right. Like we ought to know, you know, what what are the limits here? You know, if, you know, either can we figure out some, you know, killer app for quantum computers and machine learning problems? Or if we can't, then why not? You know, is, you know, is, is something that I that I that I equally want to know. And, and then, you know, of course, the, 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 there, there are lots of machine learning problems that themselves involve quantum mechanics, right, where you're trying to learn properties of a quantum state or properties of a Hamiltonian, which is like the, the you know, the way that quantum states change over time. Um, and, and, and for those kinds of problems, th- there it's a completely different story. There, yes, I'm very optimistic that quantum computers will help us a lot. Right. And, you know, and and in any case, tools from quantum information will be the relevant ones for understanding those problems. Right. And there's been a lot of progress there. Okay, so those are all things that, uh, you know, and 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 some of those are things that I've worked on personally. You know, I've worked on procedures for learning properties of quantum states using like exponentially fewer measurements than, than, than a naive approach would need. Right. Like if you want to learn, you know, a a full description of a quantum state, 
you know, of like a hundred qubits, there are two to the hundredth power parameters that you have to learn, right? That's an absolutely enormous learning problem. Okay. But I had a paper in 2007 where I said, okay, but, but if we change the question a little and we say, well, you just need to predict the outcomes of most measurements on the state for some, you know, you know, given some probability distribution over measurements that have yes or no outcomes, uh, then the, the amount of data that you need to do that is exponentially smaller. It's only like, you know, linear in a hundred, right? It's order of a hundred data points that you need. Okay, so, so you know, and, and, and the way that I was able to prove that was by using techniques from classical machine learning, right, from classical computational learning theory, and just combining those with quantum information theory, okay, and, and you know, and, and since then, I've done many, many other things, you know, along the same line. Uh, one of them was called shadow tomography, uh, like five years ago, which so I proposed a way that you could learn the outcomes of all measurements uh, 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 on your state that belong to some predecided list, you know, even if that list is very enormous. So you can like learn the outcomes of exponentially many different measurements on an, you know, uh, on a state with exponentially many parameters given, you know, by carefully measuring only a polynomial number of copies of the state, right? And, you know, and, and, that, and that, again, uses techniques from, from machine learning. Uh, so so, so there, are, there are lots of um, points of intersection between quantum computing and machine learning. You know, whether or not quantum computers will be revolutionary for solving classical machine learning problems, which I regard as still very much an open question. But uh, yeah, so then uh, uh, this year, you know, I'm sort of on leave to work at OpenAI and, and what I'm doing for OpenAI actually has nothing to do with quantum computing. <laughs> so it, it does not draw on any of that intersection, right? It's, uh, 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 and, and that's just because OpenAI approached me, uh, uh, you know, some people there, I guess, were, were reading my blog. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, um, a year ago, uh, someone was, was asking me in my comment section, like, Scott, what is it going to take to get you to stop wasting your life on all of this quantum stuff and work, and work on the only problem that matters the, nowadays, which is preventing a super intelligent AI from taking over the world? And... You know, I said, well, you know, so like I, I've I've been familiar with these arguments for a long time, right? I've known Eliezer Yudkowsky since like 2006 or so, right? The uh, sort of AI doom people who are, you know, who have been, you know, very extremely worried about this particular scenario where AI becomes super intelligent and it takes over, and you know, and and uh, you know, and and they've basically felt that everyone else should drop what they're doing and just think about that. And I was always very skeptical of that, right? Partly because, you know, I felt like, uh, uh, well, uh, you know, even you know, like, like supposing that I agreed that, that this was a big issue, and I would say, you know, and, and, and who knows, right? Who knows how long it will take for AI to reach a human or a superhuman level? It could be hundreds or even thousands of years for all we know, right? But, you know, supposing that that were to happen in the next 20 years or whatever, well, you know, what do you want me to do about it, 
right? Like I didn't see a research program there that had either, uh, um, um, you know, math, like, like axioms that we all agree on and that we can prove theorems about or experiments that we can do that sort of tell us something useful. It all seemed like armchair philosophizing, right? Seemed like just imagining a super powerful, super intelligence that, you know, that is almost godlike and that can do whatever it wants. And, and, you know, that, that, uh, 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 almost anything that it, that it might want would be unaligned with human values. And then, you know, very quickly, it just kills all humans, you know, like the Terminator or the Matrix or whatever, and it takes over the world. And, you know, and it was all, it was just a very depressing subject because you just convince your, you just convince yourself over and over again that there is nothing you can do faced with <laughs> such a, a super intelligence. And you just, you know, you, you refute 10,000 ideas for, for things that you could do by, by saying, okay, no, but, but the super intelligence will be too smart and, and whatever strategy you have, it will have foreseen it and it will have, you know, it will have found a way around that. Okay. So, so, so it just, it just didn't seem, I just, I just never felt like there was that much meat. It didn't seem that, you know, whereas like in, 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 in quantum compute, you know, so we don't have a super intelligent AI. We don't have a scalable quantum computer either. Right. But the difference is that we can, with the quantum computer, you know, at least we can, uh, we can do all of this interesting math. Right. We know exactly, you know, w- what the device should be and we can start, uh, 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 actually understanding what it will and won't be capable of, you know, and then also, of course, there are the people who do experiments and who are trying to build the, the actual machines, right. Which, um, seems like, you know, seem to me like actually an easy problem compared to replicating the human brain, you know, compared to building an AI, um, 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 but but then um, uh, you know so 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 the OpenAI people approached me like a, a year ago, uh, uh, um, uh, yeah. So 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 you know uh, uh, you know because of this this conversation that, that I was having on on my blog, right? And and I was I, I you know I what I was saying in that conversation was. Uh, um, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, what, what, I, what I would really need is kind of a meaty problem. Like at least, like now, you know, like I could start to see. Okay, AI is changing the world, right? There are now these artifacts like GPT, you know, and Dolly, which are you know way beyond where I would have expected AI would have been by now, right? You know, I I didn't know that just taking, you know, uh, uh, neural networks and back propagation, you know, taking ideas that were, you know, around, you know, so, you know, in the eighties, you know, around when I was a student in the nineties, right. And just scaling them up, right. You know, would, would produce such astounding results, right. You know, because again, you know, as, as I said before, there are no theorems that tell us any of this stuff. Right. The, you know, the, 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 all, the only test of all these things, you know, has been empirical. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, I guess so, so I didn't predict these things. I mean, my only defense is that hardly anyone else predicted them either. Right. Including, you know, AI experts, including, even, you know, many of the ones who were most optimistic, you know, they didn't know that, 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 that this particular approach was going to get as far as it would. Right. Uh, but it has. 
And, you know, and, and, and given that it's happened, you know, the least that I can do is update on that. Right. I don't want to be, you know, I, I have colleagues in computer science who, you know, look at what has happened in the past few years with GPT and other large language models. And for them, the main problem is to just invent reasons why none of it counts, you know, why none of this is true intelligence. None of it is, you know, is, is that impressive or interesting. And, and no, no, it, it, it clearly is impressive, right? It, you know, regardless of how we talk about what is going on, you know, inside of, of these deep nets, I think they're clearly going to change the world at least as much as the internet did, right? That is just kind of like a loose lower bound, right? At this point. And, and so, so of course, you know, I was very excited about that, but I, I didn't really know, you know, is, is there anything that a theoretical computer scientist like me, you know, could, 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 could contribute to this, right? Cause it's, it's, it's not obvious. I mean, it's way, it's much, much harder to apply theory to AI than it is to apply theory to quantum computing or to cryptography or things like that, right? Because, because of the issue that we were talking about, because of the, the, you know, the fact that AI works by exploiting these real world regularities that tend to be very hard to formalize. Okay, but then um, 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 Ilya Sutskever, who's you know a co-founder of OpenAI, and uh, Jan Leike, who's the head of the uh, safety group at OpenAI, uh, started talking to me uh, a year ago and saying, "Look, you know, we think that we do actually have problems where you know a th- theoretical perspective uh, would be helpful." And we want you to take a year off from your quantum computing job and, uh, you know, help us think about those problems. And, and you know, I, I, I was, you know, I was kind of like, uh, why do you want me? You know, uh, you know, and, 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 and they, you know, I think part of it was that one of my former students in quantum computing named Paul Cristiano, who was a, a real superstar uh, student, um, you know, absolutely amazing. We worked together on quantum money. Then he got a PhD at Berkeley with, with you know, my same former advisor, uh, uh, Umesh Vazirani. And then Paul left quantum computing and became a full-time AI safety person because, you know, this was the most important thing. And uh, Paul actually helped to start the safety group at OpenAI uh, and then left OpenAI to f- start his own AI safety organization called, called ARC, Alignment Research Center. Okay, but Paul helped to, you know, convince everyone in this community that, that actually computational complexity is one of the keys to AI alignment, right? Uh, and, you know, these things we know in particular about interactive proof systems, about how like a very weak verifier could nevertheless verify the behavior of a super powerful and untrustworthy prover, right? That these were going to be, you know, relevant to AI, you know, at least at the level of analogy and maybe even more than an analogy, right? So, so, so I think, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was because of Paul's influence that they were, you know, interested in me uh, at all. Uh, but, you know, that, then I said, well, well, look, you know, I have, it sounds exciting, but, you know, I, 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 I'm in Austin, you're in San Francisco, you know, I've got kids, I've got, you know, uh, 
uh, obligations to my students and 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 they said okay you know you can work remotely you can you know just work in in austin and just you know come visit us every month or so and i said well that sounds great. You know, may, maybe I'll do it some other year when I can arrange it. And they said, uh, trust us. This is going to be a really, really big year for, 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 uh, for AI, for large language models. You know, you want, you want to be involved this year. And uh, I said, okay, let me see if I can rearrange my teaching schedule and do that. So that is how I ended up uh, doing this this year. I, I do want to come back to some of your recent writings on um, things like the orthogonality thesis and stuff like that. But perhaps first, let's talk about what you were working on at OpenAI. And you've been doing a few AI-related things recently. So I saw you had a very preliminary analysis of Dolly 2 that you were on with Gary Marcus, for instance. Oh, yeah, that, that, that was before I even started at OpenAI. And that was basic, basically all that happened was that Gary Marcus and Ernie Davis, who were two... Um, 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 professors at NYU, you know, who've generally been very, very skeptical about, you know, about uh, 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 generative AI, uh, uh, you know, they, uh, um, uh, you know, wanted to test Dolly's ability uh, to, to uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, at compositionality. So like, you know, follow, uh, 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 fulfilling complicated prompts, like, uh, you know, a blue cube, that is on top of a, a red sphere next to, you know, an orange cone and, 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 and so forth. you right. And, you know, and like not surprisingly, when you pile on too many, you know, constraints like that, then Dolly starts messing it up. Right. Uh, but, you know, but, 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 but uh, th- they didn't have access to Dolly at that point. So, you know, and, 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 and I did uh, because, you know, um, 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 I, I was just talking to OpenAI at that point, but they just, you know, gave me Dolly access. And uh, uh, so, so, so I, so I try, I, I, I helped them run the experiments, you know, for their, for, for these prompts and uh, Dolly actually did better than they were expecting it to. Right. Uh, not, not perfectly, but better than, than they had expected. And so then they wrote a paper about it and they added me as a co-author. And uh, yeah, that, 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 that was all. But um, since, uh, uh, since I've been at OpenAI, uh, the easiest to explain of all the things that I've, that I've worked on there is a scheme for, for watermarking uh, the outputs of, of, yes. of GPT. Right. So uh uh, you know, so, so I realized like, you know, last summer, like, uh, you know, I, I had this very, very aggressive and inventive troll on my blog who was, uh, you know, impersonating all these people, you know, including friends of mine, right. Doing a, you know, unfortunately a really good job of it. Right. And, uh, so that like, even, even my other friends were, 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 were fooled. Right. And, uh, yeah. And then I, I got into the, this like kind of paranoid mindset where like, I could no longer trust anything that anyone was posting on my blog as being really from that person. Right. And I, you know, I had to institute some you know, email verification system and fine. But, but then, you know, I realized like, oh my God, um, GPT is going to automate, you know, all kinds of, you know, nefarious things, you know, passing off text as, as, as not what it looks like. Right. And so anyone who wants to impersonate people, you know, online or who wants to engage in fraud or, or post, let's say 
spamming every comment section with, you know, pro-Putin propaganda or whatever, or, you know, you know, more prosaically, every student who wants to cheat on their term paper, right, is going to have this incredible tool with which to do that, right? And wouldn't it be great if we could find a way of, of distinguishing AI-generated text from from human generated text, right? Yeah, in order to to uh, uh, to to clamp down on 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 all of these categories of misuse. Okay, now you know in AI safety, like people are constantly talking about timelines and like where do you think you know the world is going to be in ten years or twenty years? You know how will AI have changed things? Uh, uh, you know, will there be existential risks and so on? Like, I can't see 10, you know, 10 or 20 years into the future. Uh, in this particular instance, I'm proud of myself that I at least saw like three months into the future. Because, you know, what, what happened then is, you know, I, I started working on this problem and sort of banging the drum about it, you know, within OpenAI. And I, I, uh, I, I came up with a scheme for uh, watermarking the outputs of GPT. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that you would. Uh, um, so, so, so the way that GPT works is, you know, is is inherently probabilistic, right? It's constantly it's taking as input like the sequence of previous words, or you know what are called tokens, which could also be like punctuation marks, you know, parts of words and so forth. So it's taking a sequence of of uh, let's say up to a couple thousand tokens uh, in your in your context window, it is putting them into this neural network, this this giant transformer net, and then uh, what the neural network outputs is a probability distribution over possibilities for the next token, right? So for each possible next word, let's say it has some probability. Okay, now in some cases. Uh, uh, almost all of the probability will be concentrated on a single choice. Okay, if I say the ball rolls down the, right, GPT knows that the next word is like more than 99% likely to be hill. Okay, uh, in other cases, it will be balanced between multiple possibilities that might be kind of equally likely, right? And And normally what GPT does is that it just samples from that distribution. Okay, it just picks the net right. Uh, now you can run it in in other modes. So there's a parameter called temperature. If you set the temperature to zero, what you're telling it to do is always pick the token with the highest probability, right? So that makes it deterministic. Okay, but now the idea with watermarking is that there's a different thing that you can do, which is you can pick the next token pseudo randomly. Okay, so you can pick it in such a way that uh, it looks you know it looks like it is chosen from the distribution that GPT wanted, right? Which means that to a normal user, the output will be indistinguishable from normal GPT output. Okay, right? It'll look just the same, but secretly you are uh, you know you're, you're you're choosing the next token in a secretly deterministic way. And, and, and not only that, you're choosing it in order to systematically bias a certain score that can be calculated later, like as a function of just the, you know, the words in the, in the, in the, in the GPT output, right? So, so now if, you know, you use GPT to generate, you know, to write your term paper for you, 
right? And let's say, you know, then your, your, your professor is suspicious. So they take the term paper, they feed it into uh, a, a, a detection tool, which OpenAI would also provide, right? And then that detection tool uh, uh, looks at, you know, uh, uh, the words. It, 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 you know, it, it knows the key to the pseudorandom function, you know, the same one that was used for uh, sort of uh, uh, picking the words. And, and then it calculates a sum, you know, over all sequences of, you know, let's say five or so consecutive words. And it sees that that sum, that score is anomalously large, right? And then it knows that, like, like let's say for a text with reasonable, you know, that's reasonably long, it knows with 99.9% probability or something that the GPT must have generated this. Right, this score would not be so large just uh, uh, by chance. So, um, so anyway, so 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 I came up with this. It was implement. Uh, I worked with an engineer at OpenAI named Hendrik Kirchner, who implemented uh, 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 this idea, and you know we we tried it out, and and then in December, um, 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 OpenAI released ChatGPT. Right. Which blew up, you know, became viral in a way, you know, way beyond what 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 open AI w- w- was expecting. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, because, you know, it was not a huge advance on on the models that had preceded it, but it was freely available and it had a nice user interface. Right. And, um, you know, and, 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 and that was all it took. To get you know like the fastest adoption of any service in the history of the internet, literally, okay, uh, uh, like uh, so something on the order of a hundred million people signed up for it, you know, in a matter of like a couple of a couple months, okay, and then you know it, it took you know you know only that it took you know like like within a month or so, students were in fact using it to cheat on their term papers, you know, as as some of us had foreseen, as we had worried about, right? And we started getting just direct pleas from professors, like, you know, you know, it will open AI have a solution to this, like, please hurry up. Okay. And, um, you know, now, now there are, there are other solutions that, you know, people have come up with. Uh, so there was an undergrad at Princeton by the name of Edward Tien, who, uh, uh, Built, uh, you know, a, something called um, um, GPT Zero, which is just a detection tool. I mean, it, 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 you know, all it is is, you know, you, like you just you treat distinguishing AI text from human text as yet another AI problem, right? So you you just uh, uh, train another AI model at that discrimination task. Okay, we at OpenAI released our own. Uh, uh, version of, of the same thing called called detect GPT okay uh, a, a, a little bit later okay and these tools I mean they are better than chance they're better than nothing but uh, uh, the, the trouble is like they can falsely accuse you know a, a student of you know of, of, of AI uh, assisted plagiarism right they are nowhere they are nowhere close to 100% accurate you know or even 99% right they uh, um and you know t- in, in, if you want to use it 
to like for 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 uh, uh, unmasking, you know, uh, uh, the use of of uh, uh, GPT. There were just too many false positives. That is the central thing where I think watermarking would be would be better than these discriminator models in pushing the rate of false positives almost to zero. Okay. Now, now, in order to do watermarking, you know, you have to change slightly the way that the uh, the, the 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 GPT itself operates, right? And then and and then and then that will create a watermark, you know, and which will then only work for GPT, right? If someone else, you know, trains their own language model, right, that might not have the watermark. Right. And so then, you know, the, now, now it becomes a very hard question. Like you could say, if someone wants to be responsible and watermark their language model, are they then putting themselves at a competitive disadvantage? Right. Will, uh, uh, you know, will, will people just switch to a competitor's model, you know, if they want to, uh, uh, you know, not have uh, everything they write be, 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 you know, everything they have their AI right be, be, be watermarked in that way. So that's one issue. Now, uh, you know, I should, OpenAI has not yet uh, deployed uh, my watermarking scheme, you know. I am hopeful that watermarking will be part of the solution going forward. Um, you know, it, it can't be the only solution to these problems, right? You know, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of which is that, you know, anyone who is clever enough can find ways to defeat, you know, watermarking or probably, you know, defeat, defeat almost any other method, right, that, that, that we could think of. It's a cat and mouse game. Yeah, it is a cat and mouse game. Ultimately, I mean, I mean, even someone who just asks GPT to write their term paper in French and then puts it into Google Translate, you know, and then and then like fixes the errors. Okay, that you know that would be a little bit more effort, maybe, but you know that like like uh, you know you know I, I I don't know how to watermark text in a way that would survive translation from one language to another one. Right. You know, and, 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 and there, there, there are other attacks that one can think of. OK, but we can at least make it a little bit more expensive for, for people to, uh, uh, to, to, to use GPT in these ways. And we can at least get started. Right. Sometimes in a cat and mouse game, there's nothing to do except just try to be the best cat you can be. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, Google, I think, never discovered a principled solution to the people trying to game search engine results, you know, all the SEO people, right? But they just try to stay one step ahead of them. And I and I could easily foresee the same thing happening with, you know, people who are using language models to generate, uh, um, um, you know, to, for, 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 for academic cheating or for propaganda or for fraud or, or, for, or for, 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 for all of these different things. So, yeah, so, so, that, so that's some of what I've been thinking about at OpenAI. And then, you know, I have other, you know, more speculative, more theoretical projects. But, uh, you know, it, it's been very uh, amusing for me. That uh, like I would you know have weekly calls with uh, with Ilya Sutskever right and uh, you know he's an extremely interesting and and thoughtful guy okay but uh, you know I would tell him about you know progress on watermarking and he would say okay yeah you know that's great Scott you should keep thinking about that but what we really want to know is kind of how can you use computational complexity theory to define what it means for the AI to love humanity. 
you know, and, and how can you define, you know, the concept of goodness in, in, you know, math, formal mathematical terms. And I'm like, you know, I'll keep thinking about that. You know, yeah, those are, those are, those are, those are tough questions, right? Harder to make progress on, right? You know, but now, you know, of course, you know, the reason why I decided to get involved in this this year is that now, you know, like there are meaty problems that you can, you know, make clear progress on, right? Like, I don't, I don't feel like I have solved the watermarking problem, but I feel like I at least made an advance on it, right? And, you know, I, I think, you know, one, one could work just on that watermarking problem for, you know, for 10 more years and there would still be more to say about it. Right. And and, you know, and I, I so I feel like we're just in the very early days now of AI safety, AI alignment as a as a technical field that you can make actual legible progress in. Some of those, as it were, bigger questions that Ilya Sitzkever posed to you about how can you use computational complexity to measure these things that seem fundamentally human is really interesting because, of course, there's a number of people who will reject out of hand that you can mathematically define certain aspects of humanity. Somebody who I know, Joel Lehman, recently put out a really interesting paper that he titled Machine Love, in which he was exploring whether large language models could embody, I think in this case, concepts of love that were derived from A, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and then B, Eric Fromm's concept of active love. And so that seemed like a really interesting direction. And of course, he notes a set of limitations, but I am curious just in some of those wild questions that you've been getting from Ilya, how you've started to think about them. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, I have not succeeded in sort of defining what it means for for ai to love humanity right i mean i think you know there 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 actually there are some interesting ideas that the ai alignment community has come up with about how do you formalize these concepts i mean one one that i like is a uh, something called coherent extrapolated volition right where you you basically uh, what it basically means is you say you know you know you don't want to train your ai on current human values because like oh my god what if we trained an ai on the human values of you know the year 1800 right and it were to lock those in forever like that would be terrible right people believe terrible things and you know in, in the year 1800 or, or at least things that we now regard you know, almost universally regard as having been terrible right and 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 surely today, you know, we we also have have values that that uh, you know our 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 descendants, if we have descendants, will will look back on with horror, right? You know, we you know we might we might be able to guess at what some of those are. You know, we don't we don't know for certain, right? But uh, uh, but but you know what what in, in some sense, you know, the values that we want. You know the AI to, to to have are like the values that we would have if we had ten thousand years to sit and think about it. You know, uh, you know if we could just sit uh, in in this you know like like the philosophers in Athens with our togas, you know, for like thousands of years and just debate and refine our moral intuitions, right? whatever views we would eventually come to. Okay. But now that might already be enough for the AI to go on, right? You might be able to just tell an AI that, 
you know, just si simulate, you know, humans having this moral discussion for, you know, this, you know, enormous amount of time, which, you know, thousands of years might, might not not actually be that much if you're an AI, you know, to, 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 to simulate and, uh, and then, and then implement whatever values, you know, the, the humans would, 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 would agree on, you know, after, after that much reflection. Okay. So, you know, there, there, are, there are ideas like that, you know, now, now it's, it's very hard, but what's very hard is to say anything mathematical and, and non-trivial about any of these proposals, right? Uh, so, so I, you know, I don't know that I've, that I've made much progress there. I mean, one, one question that, uh, uh, where, 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 where I feel like may, maybe, maybe, maybe I did have something uh, a little bit interesting was, uh, the question of, of an off switch. Okay. So you could say, you know, the, 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 an off switch is like the, the first AI alignment idea in the world. Right. It's the first and most basic of, you know, either switching it off when it starts to go berserk or pulling the plug or, or whatever. Right. And, you know, the, 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 the alignment people have, you know, for a long time uh, had had arguments that 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 is not good enough. Right. And, and, and why and why isn't it good enough? Well, because, you know, if the AI is intelligent enough then, you know, it, it, it will have foreseen that the humans, you know, might, might turn it off and it will probably have goals that would best be served if it's not switched off, right? You know, whatever its goals are, if, you know, it can best pursue those goals if it's, if it's still on. And so, you know, it will, you know, may have come up with a plan, either disabling its off switch or talking the humans out of turning it off or making copies of itself all over the internet, you know, or, or, um, and so, 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 you know, there, there, there's a whole subfield of AI safety called, called corrigibility, right? That's about like, how can you, how can you change the AI's objective, uh, uh, later if you decide it wasn't the right one or, you know, as, as one, as one special case, how can you switch it off? Uh, and and what I what I realize, you know, is you know, the, 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 there's been you know a, a recent really exciting work in in at the intersection of cryptography and machine learning, uh, which, which uh, has shown at least in some cases how to insert a cryptographic backdoor into a machine learning model. Okay, so so um, you know, so there was a paper by. Uh, uh, a Shafi Goldwasser and a Vinod Vaikuntanathan and uh, and two others. Uh, these are cryptographers. Some of them are actually my 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 former colleagues at at at, at MIT. But uh, they um, you know at least for like a, a depth certain depth to neural networks, they show that you can insert a backdoor where like if the the network gets this certain like bizarre input then it does some special thing that you want it to do, you know, such as, you know, switching itself off or whatever. Okay. Uh, uh, but, but, but now, even if you could see all of the weights of the neural net, it would be computationally intractable for you to, to find that secret input if you weren't told it, right? Like you would have to solve a hard cryptographic problem. And in, in, in that case, it's something called the planted clique problem. Like, you know, given a large graph that looks kind of random, find some anomalously large set of vertices that are all connected to one another. Okay, that 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 that, that, that that's what uh, uh, 
is known in, in theoretical computer science as the planted clique problem. Um, and, and, and so that, you know, they could show that finding the back door is at least as hard as solving that. Okay. And now they viewed that as mostly a negative for AI safety, like a bad person could insert a, could insert this back door into a machine learning model that people would, would then use, you know, and, and that bad, you know, and, and no one would be able to, to detect it. And then that bad person could go and trigger the back door whenever they wanted to. Right. But, you know, like, like many, many things, you know, in, in, in science, it's like, you know, you know, have this property of like, if, 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 if the world gives you a lemon, you can make lemonade. Right. Right. You know, like, like, uh, uh, you know, whether something is good or bad all depends on, on, on uh, uh, who is doing it. Right. And so, so, you know, this could also be seen as a, as a positive for AI alignment, right? Like what if we use these back doors to insert a cryptographic off switch into a, a powerful AI model? Okay. So, so you could have um, uh, like a, 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 a robot where, um, um, you know, like, like only humans know, you know, this secret instruction, you know, that will, cause the robot to shut down or something. And, you know, even if the robot knows its own weights and can modify them, you know, it would not easily find that shutdown instruction. Right. So, um, so, 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 so that's an idea that I've been playing with. I mean, I think that we're, we're really at the beginning of this thing that, you know, I could, I could easily imagine this being a large part of the whole future of cryptography. This like, how do you, you know, what kind of cryptographic, stuff can you insert into a machine learning model or you know or, or or how hard is it to detect that stuff once inserted you know i've i've taken to calling this uh neuro cryptography uh almost, someone else suggested calling it deep crypto but i'm, I'm not sure that, that uh, I, I think we have to veto that name uh so so yes yeah, so, so, so 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 that is something i've been thinking about uh, you know, and, and, and in some sense, like, you know, I think it's possible to make progress here just because uh, this is, um, uh, uh, you, know, you know, you don't really have to understand what's going on inside the AI that well, right? You can just take the AI as given and then put this cryptographic thing on top of it. Okay. Now, you know, these sort of AI alignment purists, they tend to be very skeptical that anything along those lines could possibly work. Right. Uh, but I think, you know, at least in the near term, you know, these things might help. They might give us more time, you know, and we can make progress on them. And uh, we can, you know, we can worry about, you know, the next thing when we, when we, when we get to it. Right. And that, and that is kind of what we do in science. Right. We don't, we don't even imagine that we can predict what the world is going to be, you know, in 20 years, but we can at least try to, you know, uh, uh, fix the problems of, of, you know, the world of one year from now, right. And leave it to the people of, of a year from now to fix the problems of two years from now and so forth. So as a last question, I suppose this could be maybe a summary of many things that you just said now and written on your blog. I find your your stance, I suppose, as a reform AI alignment person, rather interesting. And I think it's interesting that we're talking about this now in the light of 
Elazir Yudkowsky's recent comments. You've written quite a bit about what he said, but I think some of his recent writing, people have taken his Time article to be saying, well, you shouldn't be afraid to do airstrikes on data centers. I think a lot of people are kind of up in arms and have very different reactions to what he said. And as a closing out point, I guess I'd just love for you to respond to some of the discourse that's gone on in and around the way that people are reacting to GPT-4, to how Elazir is thinking about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that if you take, you know, Eliezer's starting assumptions, right, that like at any point, you know, AI could just go off a cliff, become super intelligent, right? At that point, you know, we should expect that, first of all, this orthogonality thesis, which says that, that uh, you know, an arbitrarily smart AI could have, from our standpoint, arbitrarily stupid goals, like, you know, converting the whole universe into paper clips or things like that. And second of all, this instrumental convergence, which says that, you know, no matter what the, the AI's goals, you know, as a first step, it's probably going to want to amass as much power and resources as possible to, to help it achieve its goals, right? And, um, and, and we also believe in this possibility, you know, in, in the likelihood I should say, of, of deceptive alignment, you know, an AI that will pretend to be, you know, doing all the things we want and following our instructions, but is actually just biding its time until, you know, the moment to strike, right, against humanity. And at that moment, you know, maybe we'll just all drop dead from some, you know, uh, engineered uh, uh, toxin, you know, at, at the same second or, or something like that. And we'll never have seen it coming, right? If you accept all of those assumptions, then, you know, I think that like, you know, you, 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 you yes, you, you, you do logically end up at the place where he now is, right? Which is saying, just shut it all down. You know, it is more important than preventing a nuclear war, right? And, and uh, you know, have an international agreement to prevent any further scaling of AI, you know, enforced, you know, as he explicitly said, you know, via, via airstrikes, you know, or the threat of airstrikes against, you know, anyone who didn't cooperate. Um, uh, now, I think, um, you know, I am, I am not at that point, right? I mean, I sort of, I, I, I get off the train in, in several places, right? But, you know, one of them is, you know, I mean, I, mean, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, even if, if one person, you know, believes that, like, you know, there, there is not evidence of that now that sort of, that can be made legible to the, to, to the whole world. Right. Like, you know, right now, I think, you know, the, the death toll from GPT, you know, I, I, I want to say that it, that it stands at zero. Uh, it might, you know, there is, you know, within the past couple of weeks, there was unfortunately a, a man in Belgium who committed suicide after spending a lot of time interacting with a with a with a language model, right? Now, you know, the 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 causation is hard to tease out. He obviously had, you know, was depressed beforehand, had some, you know, uh, uh, conditions. But but let's say, you know, the the you know, out of hundreds of you know millions of people who have used these things now, you know, the death toll is either zero or one, right? And um, you know, so so I think that that uh, uh, you know, if if and when 
a la you know a language model is used by terrorists let's say to launch a you know to help them design a terrorist attack to help them design uh, a new weapon uh, a new you know engineered pandemic or or something like that you know and it causes you know mass suffering i think at that point the whole conversation will be different and you know there will then be you know all the governments will be you know uh uh uh, uh uh, you know, passing legislation to try to, you know, control this, restrict this, uh, uh, slow it down. Um, uh, and, 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 and the companies themselves will, will want to slow it down. I mean, you know, they, they may, you know, want to make money, but they also don't want to be, you know, killing people and destroying the world. Right. So, 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 you know, this is, you know, the, 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 the issue is that, you know, we're not, at that point, some people think it's inevitable that, that it's going to get there. Other people don't think so, right? And, uh, uh, you know, there is a one hypothesis that says, well, like, you know, th- these language models, you know, as impressive as they are, they're kind of ultimately bottlenecked by just how intelligent, you know, how much intelligence was there in their training data, right? There's like, you know, uh, 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 like they're never going to be more intelligent than like the best experts that they can find on the internet in order to train, you know, to train themselves on, right? And, um, uh, uh, you know, I think to the extent that people believe that thesis, you know, then then may, maybe this never becomes that dangerous, right? So, so you know, what, 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 I, what, what I have found the hardest to wrap my head around here are the people who, on the one hand, they want to dismiss language models as stochastic parrots, as you know, just uh, just you know, glorified autocomplete, as just not very impressive, not interesting. Doesn't that they don't truly understand the world? They don't really understand semantics, or you know, you know, they don't have you know, they're you know, they're uh, a symbol grounding or 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 anything like that. But then on the other hand, they also think the language models are terrifying and it has to be shut down, right? That combination seems like very, you know, hard to make consistent. It's like you can make it consistent. You can reconcile those two views, but you seem to have to do something like saying, okay, you know, uh, the reason that language models are dangerous is that most people are idiots, Right. You know, like like I can I can easily see that this is unimpressive and a stochastic parrot. But, you know, all the simpletons, all the 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 plebeians, you know, they will all be tricked by this. Right. Uh, You know, into and and it will, you know, ruin their lives or somehow. Right. So, I mean, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, for the for the people who think that the language models are not impressive, not intelligent, you know, I think that they are inadvertently, you know, making an argument that there's no reason to stop scaling. You know, scaling should, 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 you know, scaling this should actually be fine. Right. We'll see that the things, you know, run into a limit, you know, as as the skeptics predicted. And, and we'll, 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 we'll learn something from that. And, you know, and, and, and that will be that. Right. I think that, 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 uh, 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 you know, to, to really have an intellectually consistent case for stopping the scaling, you know, the, the consistent case that I see is the existential risk case.
right? It is, you know, it is the, you know, sort of uh, vaguely Yudkowskian case, right? That this could, you know, make a sudden sharp turn to causing this catastrophe for the world. Um, but uh, um, uh, again, you know, for uh, uh, for that, uh, like I am, what what I'm skeptical of is the is 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 the is the scenario where where everything seems fine and then in, and then instantly we all drop dead, right? I think you know that like what, if we've learned anything from you know from this generation of AI, right? We, you know, it, it's that it it undergoes a learning process as humans undergo a learning process, right? Not identical to our learning process. But, uh, you know, like before it's amazing at math, it is mediocre at math. You know, before it's amazing at poetry, it is mediocre at poetry, right? And I think before it is amazing at deceiving humans and taking over the world, it would first be mediocre at those things, right? It would, it would try to deceive people and, and not do very well. Or it would, it would you know, uh, be able to help uh, bad humans, you know, take power, you know, in some limited way, you know, kill some limited number of people, you know, as opposed to destroying the entire world. And so I feel like we might as well worry about those risks first. I think that a lot of the writing you've done on this subject definitely is really articulate. And this was a good summary. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. This was really of course, interesting. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.